We live in times of great cynicism about leaders. From politicians to leaders in business and entertainment and spiritual leaders, we find ourselves surrounded by stories of leadership failures. Yet, even in our growing suspicions, our close-heartedness toward leaders, we cannot be done with the idea of leadership. It is both a practical necessity and it's a deep longing of the human heart. God made us to be led. We were made for true leaders, for good leaders, and we ache for them. For leaders who will bless their followers and seek the good of their followers rather than use them. And this angst about leaders in our times makes Psalm 72 an especially relevant word for us. And not just as humans, and not just as those who are alive in 2023, but in particular for us as a church, as we'll see. Psalm 72 is a prayer for the ideal leader. And it's the 3,000-year-old prayer cast in the terms of ancient Israel. We'll try to wade through that. And yet the vision is strikingly timeless, both in terms of its ultimate fulfillment and in terms of its personal application to us in our various roles and manifestations of leadership. We all are led. So this is relevant. And most of us serve as leaders in some aspect of our lives, whether as father or mother or older sibling or some role at work or on a team or in the neighborhood or with extended family. Now, the question we might have on the face of Psalm 72 is, who is this king that the psalm is originally for? You know, before we learn about it in 2023 and have a vision and seek to grow in our own leadership, who is the king of Psalm 72? The superscript up at the top says, of Solomon. So does that mean Solomon wrote it for his son? But verse 20 at the end says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended with this great vision of a future leader. Does that imply that the prayer, Psalm 72, is a prayer for David's royal son? That was Solomon. I think that an aging David praying for his son Solomon probably makes the most sense of this psalm in its larger context. There are themes here that very much belong to the end of David's reign. And we saw in Psalm 71 talking about aging. 2 Samuel 23 has some similar themes at the end of David's reign. And then Solomon prays in some similar ways at the beginning of his reign. But as I hoped you would expect by now, as you're almost halfway through the Psalms, it's amazing, almost halfway through, I hope you expect that this Psalm is going to end up being about Jesus. You know that by now, right? Sometimes it's subtle enough 
that we deal with the whole psalm mainly in its original context and we talk about the glimpses and hints and subtleties that point to Jesus at the end. But it's not subtle in Psalm 72. Now, Psalm 72 is not strictly messianic, like a Psalm 110, as we'll see in a couple summers, three summers. This really is a prayer for Solomon or other royal sons in the royal line, yet the vision of this psalm is so expansive. Verses 8 to 11 talk about a king without borders to the ends of the earth. No human king has ever done this, not just in Israel. In verses 5 to 7, pray for a king without end. At least his name and influence don't end, if not also his life. The majesty of this king for all time and in all places over all nations swells beyond what any Israelite king ever came close to realizing. So as Christians, we know where this is going. David may have prayed this for his royal son, Solomon. Solomon may have prayed it for his royal son. But only the one Messiah fulfills Psalm 72. That is, only Jesus. And yet, Psalm 72 has relevance beyond Jesus, so to speak. Relevance for us in real live manifestations, in various imperfect measures in those who seek to walk like Jesus in our leadership today. Every good and godly leader instantiates this vision in some real, though imperfect ways. So as we look at Psalm 72 this morning, let's highlight four aspects of this ideal leader, four aspects of his leadership. And it's fulfilled perfectly and primarily in Jesus. And secondarily and imperfectly in Christian leaders of all kinds. So as we go through the four aspects, hear both relevance to Jesus and application to us. Number one, his people flourish. This is verses 15 and 17, mainly verse 15 to 17. His people flourish. Verse 7 prays, in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound. And then verses 15 to 17, especially verse 16, flesh out this flourishing. Look at 15 to 17. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba, Sheba famous for its gold, it's the best of gold, Sheba's gold. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. So one aspect of this ideal leader is 
his people flourish. The flourishing of the people is a measure of the goodness of the leader. So how so? How do people flourish? Well, for one, they have. They have resources. They have abundance of grain and fruit in verse 16. And even the tops of the mountains, that means that's the most unlikely of soils. Mountaintop soil, very unlikely for a good crop. Even the tops of the mountains wave with grain. Under this ideal leader, the people prosper. He leads them in such a way that they steward what land they have, and they work it, and they harvest its produce rather than squandering the land or ruining it. But they not only have, these flourishing people give. They have gold. They must have traded their grain and fruit in its abundance for the gold of Sheba. They have gold. Verse 15, from which they give tribute to their king. And yet, mark this, they are not only a material people. Having wealth and giving wealth, but this flourishing people are a spiritual people. They pray for their king, making prayer for him continually and invoking God's blessings for him all the day. Verse 15, this is an essential mark of a flourishing people. They pray, they're spiritual. Let's be this at City's Church. They acknowledge and reverence God and pray to Him for their leaders and for everything else. What a spiritual act that prayer is to pause your action and motion and life in this material world, to close your eyes or bow your knees and pray for God's help. Very spiritual. And as the people pray, God answers, and their leaders prove wise and mature, and the people flourish even more, and so they multiply. They grow. A flourishing people multiply and grow. That's the end of verse 17. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. In verses 8 to 11, mention desert tribes and kings from faraway coastlands, the very ends of the earth. Now, verse 16 includes something that may sound strange to us in 2023. May people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. And after the last three years, you might think, in the cities? How about in the prairies? How about on the lakes, in the country, in the small town, on the farm? Not the cities, not the twin cities. Get me to the Dakotas and wide open spaces. Isn't that where people blossom and flourish now? might be for a short time. 
Yet the prayer of verse 16 gives us a glimpse in how to think Christianly about cities and the twin cities in which we live. Just this week, I was in Manhattan with my family of six, with an eight-year-old and a six-year-old. From there, we took the train and stayed in downtown Philadelphia. And I talked ahead with Pastor Kenny, who's from Philadelphia, and he told me what parts to avoid in Philadelphia, because apparently not everything in Philadelphia is blossoming. And then on our way home, our flight was delayed out of Philly, we got to Detroit late, we couldn't make, get our connection, and we couldn't get a family of six on a flight anytime the next day. So we stayed two unplanned nights in Detroit. Detroit's not on my bucket list. Anybody here, Detroit? So we've been on quite the city tour in the last week and have seen the best and worst of American cities. And honestly, none of them feels especially easy for young families. And yet here in Psalm 72, in this prayer for the future, David envisions God's people blossoming in the cities. That is, with all the challenges of the densities and pressures and crowdedness, God's people blossom in the cities. We were made for cities, at least eventually. And cities themselves, in all their strengths and complexities and opportunities, are the blossoming of human civilization and industry. Cities, not prairies, are our future, both in this age and forever. The New Jerusalem is the name of a city. I can tell you from being there earlier this week, Manhattan is not becoming more rural, neither is Minneapolis. But our world is slowly becoming more like Manhattan. The world is growing towards cities, and good cities are God's world in bloom. And as a church in the central metro, filled with people from all around the metro, urban and suburban, I'm including you suburbanites in this, this is not anti-suburban. We should be encouraged by this vision and prayer. Blossoming in the cities can happen, even in this age. It's possible. Pray for it. Seek it. Try it. Endure in it. And one day, for sure, it will happen under the full and final reign of the ideal leader. Which relates to that little phrase in verse 17, in him. This happens in him. May people be blessed in Him. So, to understand the flourishing of the people, we need to know more about the leader himself. So, his people flourish. Number two, his strengths serve the people's good. Now, we pick up verses one to four. His strengths serve the people's good. Look at the beginning. Give the king your justice, O oh God, may your, and your righteousness to the royal son. 
May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. So there's a threefold vision of leadership here for the skills or the abilities or competencies or strengths of this ideal king. The first is his ability to make the decisions that leadership requires. This is not insignificant. To make wise and skilled judgments. In other words, the king decides. Verse 1 is literally, give the king your judgments. It's plural. Give the king your judgments, O God. Make him wise and discerning in the countless decisions that it takes to lead well. Help him to know in the ever-changing, ever-complex situations of life and leadership how to navigate the moment not for his own private good, but for the good of his people. We all want to make decisions when they're easy. Freedom, make my own decisions. There's all sorts of easy decisions we love making for ourselves. Good leaders have to make the hard decisions that most people don't want to make. And do so in a way that does not have their own private interest in view, but the good of the whole people, which is often personally costly to the good leader. So the king decides, and there's a great burden in good leadership on those decisions. Second, the king provides. We saw the mention of mountains already in verse 16. And here, the mountains bearing prosperity for the people, that's a sign of abundance. If mountains are bearing prosperity, then of course the other lands are. And we can say this about the king's leadership. He guides the people in such a way that they steward the land and they reap its natural benefits in season. They don't let a harvesting season pass in laziness or a summer pass. They at least conserve the land. They sow in the spring, they gather at harvest. And so through his able leadership, he provides for the people. It's not that he's independently wealthy and just gives. He leads them in such a way that he provides for them through their involvement in the enterprise. And then third, verse four, he protects his people which has two parts to it. He defends the cause of the vulnerable and he crushes the oppressors of the vulnerable. These two go together, two sides of one coin, complement each other. Oppressors don't just go quietly when the king shows up for the rescue. Oppressors must be confronted and defeated. Just think of the Egyptians as they bore down on the Israelites at the Red Sea. They didn't just go home. They had to be defeated. To protect his people, the king must crush his enemies. More on that in a minute. But note, the ideal king not only exercises wisdom, 
and provides for his people, but he also protects them, and particularly those who are weak and needy and poor, that is, those without the power to protect themselves. The leader leverages his strengths to protect his people who are weak. That's what Jesus does for us, and why Christians from the very beginning have been people with hearts to help the weak, the needy, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the unborn. Which leads to a third aspect of this ideal leader. So the previous one is about his hands, his strengths, his abilities. Number three is about his heart, the open heart rather than closed heart. Number three, his heart pities the needy. His heart pities the needy. There is a flash of his heart first in verse 6. Look at verse 6. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. This is very similar to how David talks in his final words in 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 to 4. That's what he says. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Gentle rain is a very insightful picture of good leadership. Think of what rain can do to crops. A gentle rain gives life, but a driving, violent rain destroys the crops. Anybody see hail fall from the sky yesterday? In my house in Minneapolis, I think it was the biggest hail I have seen in 20 years in the Twin Cities, bigger than golf balls. Farmers were not rejoicing at the falling of such hail or at driving flood-like rains. Farmers want gentle rain. And this is what gentleness in leadership is. It is not weakness. It's not drought. Rather, it is strength applied in life-giving rather than harmful ways. Gentle leaders are not weak. Mark that in your minds. Somebody's a weak leader, he's always gentle. No, he's not. He's weak. Gentleness presupposes strength and adds the virtue of using the strength in a way that benefits the people rather than harms them, which begins in the leader's heart. That begins with an open heart, not a closed heart in the leader. So there's the glimpse in verse 6, but then 12 to 14, expand on this prayer. And this is very important here, verses 12 to 14, because these verses give the reason why this king's leadership, why his dominion extends so far to include the ends of the earth and all kings and all nations. Look at verses 12 to 14. For, we'll come back to that. For, he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper, he has pity on the weak and the needy. 
and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Now, there is only one for or because in Psalm 72, at the beginning of verse 12. And it shows verses 12 to 14, humanly speaking, to be the reason why this king's dominion stretches so far, why so many bow the knee to him. So review verse 11, verse 11, may all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Then verse 12, for, and what might we expect here? All nations bow down, for, nobody's as strong as this king, or for, no one's as wise and intelligent as this king, or for, no one's as rich and wealthy as this king. And what does verse 12 say? For, he delivers the needy. In other words, the ideal king wins the nations with his mercy. He may conquer hostile forces with force, but he does not win worshipers with the sword. He wins worship with his stunning mercy. He works for the joy of the needy, the weak, the poor, and in doing so, he reveals his warm heart of pity, of compassion, and wins others to bow the knee. In the prelude this morning, I know, I know we're coming in, we're gathering at the prelude, some are talking gloriously, you know, greeting each other with figurative holy kisses as we gather. And the band singing. Some of you may have heard the words, others not. Glorious hymn by Isaac Watts called Jesus Shall Reign. And in one of the verses of Jesus, Jesus Shall Reign is about Psalm 72. That's why we did it. Thank you, Max. Psalm 72. One of the verses goes like this. Here we go. People and realms of every tongue dwell on his, what do they dwell on? Power, smarts, IQ, wealth, dwell on his love with sweetest song. That is Psalm 72. This ideal king in his unequaled strength and wisdom and wealth has pity on weak people. He has compassion on the needy. He is sympathetic to the desperate, the humble, who own their need for rescue. And his heart of mercy wins his people and the nations. But what about the tension in verses 4 and 14? I don't know if you caught that as Matt read the passage. There's two mentions of oppressor or oppression. Verse 14 says that he redeems his people from oppression and violence. This is good. He's anti-violence, right? He's redeeming his people from oppression and violence. 
In verse 4, it says, he crushes the oppressor of his people. All right, so at this point, we're not talking about his gentleness toward his own people, but we're talking about his strength in protecting his people. And when he does so, does he oppose violence or use it? Because crush the oppressor is strong language. Sounds like violence to me. Or is it? I think the answer is at least this. The way he opposes violence of necessity is by crushing the oppressors. And crushing an oppressor, a known oppressor, is very different than oppressing with violence. Jesus is never the oppressor. He crushes the oppressors, and he does so in a very unexpected way. That leads to a final aspect of this ideal leader. Number four, his God gets glory. Verses 18 and 19. It's amazing Psalm 72 ends like it does. I mean, the glory of the king in verse 17. I mean, it's his name, his fame. This king is so glorious. And then that glory gives way to verses 18 and 19. Look at 18 and 19. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. So as wondrous as this ideal leader is in his wise decisions and gracious provisions and strong protection of his people and stunning mercy, verse 18 says, God alone does wondrous things. In other words, either this king is God himself, which is true of Jesus and unique of Jesus, or, or also, the wondrous works of this good godly leader are wondrous works of God. Both are true for Jesus, just the second are true of other godly leaders. So not only does the king's name and fame endure, but also God's glorious name will be praised forever in the whole earth, without end or limit, without expiration or borders. There's an important clarification here. Psalm 72 doesn't say that God gets the glory and not the king. The king gets glory big time. And God gets glory in the king. The king gets honor and praise, gifts of gold, cries of long live the king, an enduring name, ongoing fame. Yet all of that is in complement to, not in competition with, the glory of God. You might hear Philippians 2, 9 to 11 here. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name 
of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The royal Son is exalted and given a name above every name, and all of it to the glory of His Father. It is not Father glorified or Son glorified, but Father glorified in Son and Son glorified in Father. Which leads, as we close here, to two particular words of hope for us as a church. This is for August 2023. This is a right now hope. The first hope concerns the perfect leader, the fulfillment of Psalm 72, Christ Himself. Brothers and sisters, as we sang, He is reigning right now. He died. He rose. He ascended. He took His seat at His Father's right hand. He is alive, and we have Him now. We have the leader of Psalm 72, the leader we long for, the leader this psalm anticipated and prayed for. We have Him now. The great leader has come his first time and will come again. And he's on his throne and he sent his spirit. And even now he has spoken and he still speaks. He builds his church. He decides with wisdom. He guides us. He leads us. And he will justly judge and right every wrong. As Christians, we have the ideal leader that our soul longs for. And we can be so quick to forget it. And for us as a church, a word of hope for this season is that our chief shepherd hasn't moved. And he won't move. For our first five years as a church, we had no pastoral transitions. It was very unusual. You know of any other church, Jonathan? First five years, no transitions in pastors. Very unusual. But in the last three years, we have had pastors move to Wisconsin, Washington State. See a map in your head. Wisconsin, Washington State, Missouri, Florida, Idaho. Like covering the whole map. I guess Southwest is coming. Who's going Southwest? It's no condemnation on my dear, our dear brothers who have moved. God calls. There's no wrong necessarily in their moving. People move. God calls. They didn't leave the faith. They left the state. And you know what? We planted this church to outlive us. We all planned a transition, at least to heaven. Under shepherds, pastors, will come and go. Jesus will not. And the under-shepherds are not the chief shepherd of the church, including ours. Jesus is, and He is the one perfect, immovable leader who will only come closer in His second coming. Second then, a word of hope. Second word of hope concerns your imperfect leaders who remain, and your own imperfections in your various callings 
of leadership. This is such good news. The chief shepherd changes us as part of his rescue of the weak and needy. We are all among the weak and needy. The only question is whether we acknowledge it and own it. And the chief shepherd brings this vision of Psalm 72 to life in real measures in leaders today. So pray for it and expect it of your pastors. We want you to hold us accountable to this. We want to be more like this. We don't do this perfectly, but we want to grow in it. And pray it for yourself and seek to be it in your various callings of leadership. The chief shepherd changes people. No matter what they say, change is possible. Don't give up on others or on yourself for needed change. And in your leadership disappointments with yourself, like we have as pastors, and with other leaders, look through and beyond to the true leader. Because in Him, in Jesus, we remember that and we admit that we are not the ideal leader and we can repent like it. And in Jesus, we not only admit that we're not Him, but we even take joy in admitting it because He's the kind of leader who has pity on the needy, an open heart of mercy. He came to call sinners, not the righteous. So whether father or mother, executive or manager, block leader, team captain, pastor or deacon, we can lay aside the pretense of perfection in our leadership. We can own our neediness, our weakness, our failures, not to mope about them or wallow in them, but to know the strength and mercy of our King. He is good, He is generous, He is compassionate, and He is open-hearted. And so we come to the table. Along with blossoming in the cities, verse 16 mentions abundance of grain and fruit. See that? Grain and fruit. What do you do with grain and fruit? Now, some fruit, you might just eat it as is, but other fruit, you might make wine. And with grain, you might make bread. Not only does the ideal leader exercise wisdom and provide for his people and protect his people, but it is only through his self-giving at the cross that he provides like that for us. He shed his own blood to show the preciousness of the life of the needy, weak, poor. His providing an abundance of grain and fruit, including the bread and cup of this table, is not cheap, but it is costly at the price of his own blood. And in that very moment, here's the end of the oppressor question. In that very moment, when he decisively crushed Satan at the cross, he showed his people mercy. The cross 
is the supreme manifestation of his regal mercy. It is the place where the king triumphs and the ground of all the other kings and nations falling before him. And his cross purchases not only pardon for his people, but are blossoming even in cities.